In episode one of this podcast, we met Betty Souter, a young widow, as she left Sydney on 26th of March 1946 to begin her journey to serve with UNRWA in remote regional China. You'll recall that as she boarded the aircraft, her thoughts were consumed by swirling emotions, grief at learning of the loss in war of her beloved John, and a desperate hope of finding a way to heal the pain of her broken heart. But also, too, anticipation, and even a frisson of excitement at the adventures which surely lay ahead. But before we rejoin Betty as she departs Brisbane for the many flights necessary in those days to reach Manila and then Shanghai, we step back three years earlier, right into the middle of the horrific Second World War. For it was then, even before the organisation we now know as the United Nations was born, that UNRWA was conceived. In addition to Betty's story of China, here we also begin to lay out the story of UNRWA. On November 9, 1943, representatives of 44 nations gathered around a table at the White House in Washington. That morning's headlines were fresh in their minds. Jap planes destroyed at Rabaul. Allies advance in Italy. Russians near Polish border. Allied victory in Europe and the Far East was slowly emerging. The fate of millions of human beings in occupied lands rode with each Allied tank and each Allied plane. Every mile of countryside recaptured from the Axis, every village and town liberated, gave them assurance that they too would someday be free. But the fate of these millions lay just as surely on that White House conference table. The document which was signed there established the first international relief agency in world history, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. UNRWA, as it came to be known, was a promise to the invaded lands and their people who were fighting for the common cause by sabotage in the hills underground, that once the aggressor's yoke had been lifted, the uninvaded lands would pool their resources to send food and medicines and clothing and other emergency supplies. In 1944, UNRWA was an affirmation to those waiting behind German and Japanese lines that they had not been forgotten. In 1945 and 1946 and 1947, it was life itself to untold numbers of them. The full impact of UNRWA assistance on the 17 war-warped countries in which the giant agency worked cannot be estimated until some time in the future, if even then. For UNRWA locomotives will be pulling their burden of boxcars down the rails, 
and Unra tractors will be drawing ploughs through the fields for some years to come. And by what device can the world ever measure the increased strength, the increased spirit that Unra food gave to hungry men and women and nations struggling to face up to their mighty reconstruction tasks? But it is not too soon to be sure of these three things. Unra prevented widespread starvation. Unra curbed sweeping epidemics. Unra averted economic collapse. In doing so, it gave the world a breathing spell in the struggle for recovery, and it put down the first stones upon which that recovery can be built. Unra also did something else. Because its job was to act rather than to deliberate or study, it was the first great international agency to go out into the world and wrestle with the problems that arrived with the peace. It was a global approach to a global problem. And it proved that an operating agency, depending upon international cooperation, can function efficiently and effectively. Its way was not easy. When its course was chartered, the Allies were united by the overpowering objective of winning the war. UNRWA had to hold to that course, despite the stresses and strains in international relations that gathered and grew with the peace. It had, in short, to operate a one-world agency in a world that was threatening to dissolve into two. Yet despite this and other hurdles, UNRWA did the job it was set up to do. It did it swiftly. Only time will tell how well and with what lasting effect. Thursday, 28th March, 1946, in the clouds. Mother dear, we've just taken off from Townsville. It's 6.30am and we are on the five and a half hour hop to Finchhaven. The setting out at 1am this morning was really quite exciting. Staff, car and all to take us to Eagle Farm, where we met our crew, collected tickets and came on board. From Brisbane to Townsville, it was, of course, dark, and the city of Brisbane was really a picture with all the lights, bridges and waterways. It's quite easy to pick out the streets of the city from the air, and in some cases, the traffic on them. Apart from Bishop, Taylor and myself, the crew of three, we have three other passengers, a US colonel and two US lieutenants. There's very little cargo on board. We're travelling about 600 pounds light, but we'll collect other freight in New Guinea for Manila. There was a clear sky to Townsville, and so the passage was smooth. Unfortunately, we've struck the clouds now, and it's pretty bumpy. Seems silly, doesn't it, that every fluffy little cloud feels like a cobblestone. However, I'm quite all right so far, and hope to continue the same way. While my fellow passengers were all spread out in their blankets, looking a lot like cuddle pie's grubs, I entertained the crew in the cockpit. 
I was invited in to see the doings and found it very cosy and comfortable in the co-pilot seat. So I stayed there. In the darkness of night, once the inner cockpit lights are switched off, it's possible to see the towns, rivers and coastline below. Really fascinating. The plane is the same type as the one which we left mascot in, but it has no innards. There are still bench seats along each wall and we get as comfortable as we can on these. The freight and our luggage is just lumped in near the tail. It's not luxury travelling, but it's not too bad. The crew are ANA men mostly, mostly XRAAF, and three with us are very friendly. They'll hand us over to another crew in Finchhaven, where we'll stay only long enough to refuel. Incidentally, the boys seem quite thrilled to have a she-male on board. One asked me if he might hold my hand for just a minute, as he had so often wanted to do that while flying over Italy. At that stage, I thought I'd best give up the comfortable spot, and so I did. The food's a problem. We bought enough to keep us from gnawing hunger pains, and it looks as though we were wise to be so prepared. They issue each of us with one blanket, which has so far been quite sufficient with our top coats. Phil's little cushion is indispensable. While I've been writing this, we've got well out to sea, but the occasional island and the clouds keep it from being monotonous. The sun is well up now, and the day should be clear. The noise in the plane is fairly intense. Talking above it, it's a bit of a strain. Once we get up to the level of travel, 10,000 feet, the ears don't seem to be affected, but the pressure as we come down temporarily causes slight deafness. The slacks and jacket are a great success, most comfortable and practicable. My companions could not be more congenial. Harry, that is Bishop, automatically takes charge if that becomes necessary. He's cheerful, never fusses or worries, and always has a suggestion for filling in spare moments, etc. He's been busily engaged in taking a snap of me as I write this. If any good, you'll receive a copy or see it in one of the papers. He's going to send shots down to Miss Clancy, the public relations officer at UNRWA. The next page will have to be the last for the airmail limit. I'll get the pilot to post this off for me. That was the consideration agreed on for the holding of the hand episode. The chances of calling at Hong Kong seem remote now. It appears the Sky Masters leave Manila each day for Shanghai, so we are most certain to go that way and to move from Manila quickly. We had our supper last night before leaving for the Drome. Steak and eggs at the Paradise Cafe, a Chinese joint in the valley, the only place open. Miss Rosebotham will probably follow us all the way now. Harry and Bill seem glad she didn't join us. She's such a fusser and ditherer. We'll finish off for the present. We'll write again between Finch and Manila, if the opportunity occurs. Thinking of you all, all the time, in spite of diversions. Please don't worry, Mum, as I'm obviously going to be looked after very well. All my love to all. Special bit for you and Dad. Production credits for this episode, produced and narrated by Warren Henry, the voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne, 
And the tune featured in this episode, Coming In on a Wing of a Prayer, recorded by The Spinners in 